Welcome back to Inside the Daily Press. I am Ross Furukawa, and today I am here with editor Matt Hall and co-publisher Todd James. What's up, guys? Hey, not much. All right. First of all, I want to apologize for our last podcast. It was very loud and clippy and not um, not uh, <laughs> didn't sound great, um, which was somewhat equipment related. But now we've upgraded our equipment, so we probably sound a little bit different. So here we go. In today's episode, an election breakdown. And since everybody has probably already done their breakdown and, and celebration over the national election, we are going to break down the local and kind of what it means to us moving forward. And I, I should say this, like we did this survey before the election where we asked readers to go on our site and, and make their picks, right? They had to pick their resources. And out of all the people that did this, a lot of people did this. Guess how many people got it right, Todd? Well, you're in a good mood, so it must be zero. Because <laughs> you, you thought you, you were worried you're going to have to buy a hundred hats if everyone got it right. Yeah, so. like we had cool prizes. We had gift cards for Phil's Coffee. We had SMDP hats, and not one person got this right. So, Matt, what does that mean? Yeah, well, so that's really interesting, right? That no, nobody got it right, and I think nobody got it right because I don't think I don't think anybody actually voted for these top four candidates on their ballot as a group, right? I think that's kind of what it means is that nobody went in. So we should say up front who the winners are, if you're yeah. right? So okay. we've got Phil Brock, uh, Gleam Davis, Oscar De La Torre, and Christine Parra. And Parra is actually above Torre in the vote count, one, two, right. three, four. Um, and so <clears throat> that's cre- unprecedented a sweep, or not quite a sweep, an unprecedented number of challengers beating incumbents taking three of the top four spots and we'll get to some of why, why yeah. that is. Um, but you know, it's, and it's a weird result. It's actually a weird result to have three challengers and not the fourth because there was a slate, right. That had right. four challengers. Plus it had uh, challengers were also running on school board and college board and they were running as a slate of eight and it was this whole thing. Yeah. And at the end of the day, we had three challengers and one incumbent on city council. And it's just weird. Like what, why? How did that one incumbent squeak through, and what happened to the fourth challenger? Right? Uh, now, for now, for for those that don't know the history, Todd, why is having three challengers win and one versus all incumbents? Why is that weird? Well, the modern history is only three incumbents have ever been defeated. Uh, last election, we had one. Pam, mm-hmm. Pam O'Connor lost, but it's incredibly rare. So, for three incumbents to lose in one election tells you something about the mood of folks. Yeah. That's a big deal. So incumbency, incredibly powerful here in Santa Monica. And it should also be said, I I noticed today, we actually put this in our newsletter. Two of the incumbents in West Hollywood, city of West Hollywood, one of them has been there since the inception of the city in 1984, (laughs) were voted out by pet uh, holistic healer. So (laughs) not that there's anything wrong with that. But you know, I think that speaks to uh, that was one of the incumbents or one of the challengers. No, one of the one of the challengers. One of the challengers. So right. the forty-one year seat city council seat got beat out by the holistic pet healer. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I mean, she probably is an incredibly powerful healer. She <laughs> beat out this forty-one year incumbent. But Matt, what do you think that? What do you well, think that says about say, our we, current environment? Was it we also lost an incumbent at the district attorney level, right? Like Jackie Lacey lost. Yeah. And so depending on what people are listening to this, that race is, hasn't necessarily 
they might not have known that race has been called. It depends, but it's it's absolutely called that Gascon won, and so yeah. like you know, absolutely, there's anti-incumbent sentiment all over the place. Um, but going back to what what happens here, right? It's not just anti-incumbency because if it was just anti-incumbency, Mario would have beat out Gleam, right? Yeah. And and he didn't, and Gleam. Squeak, no, I didn't squeak through. She's the second second place. And so anti-incumbency got them so far, right? And I think we can look at Mario's vote total, and he, I think, has about, last time I checked, 7.5% of the total vote. Mm-hmm. Um, and Phil, who's in first place, has about 11, 11.5%. Um, right, but if so that people voted for four seats. So if you multiply that by four, still the top vote getter didn't, get 50% of the people to vote for them. And we can ask why that is. I think the fact that there's 21 people on the ballot is ridiculous. And that, <laughs> that shaped this election. You know, there was a number of people who run just to run, I guess, because it makes them feel good, but they don't actually campaign. They don't raise money. They don't really do anything to get ahead and be a serious candidate. And yet, because we had so many of those people this time, and you can ask, why did so many of those people even get any votes? And in fact, if you look at the people that really didn't seriously campaign, depends on how you define them, but they got somewhere between 22,000 and 28, 29,000 votes. Wow. Um, so, and, and so, and, so for and you perspective, look at, yeah, the, the you first place at, vote getter, Phil, only has uh, 18,800 18, yeah. votes, yeah, <laughs> 700 votes. So, you know, that's a major factor here too. Um, yeah. people kind of throw, throwing away your votes, their votes, if you will, those, those added up to a lot. You know, if you had had eight serious candidates instead of 21 candidates, you know, things might've looked differently. Also, we have no idea how, but it's just, uh, there was a lot of noise in this campaign. Yeah. We may not be able to say definitively, but I would argue that – so there's a lot of people who, clear, who clearly voted in clusters that, is, that are not logically consistent, and that's fine. But in general terms, if you voted for one of the non-serious candidates, I think you were less likely to have voted for three incumbents and one, one random person, right? You were probably, I think it's safe to say, voting four challengers in – and some of your challenger votes went to these other candidates. So right. I would argue that the quantity of candidates on the ballot robbed Mario of that fourth seat. Like, and whether it's his, whether it's hard to know if he would have gotten the fourth seat because Gleam again is number two, and like there are some other ways this could have played out. But mm. I think, right? I think it's. I don't think Gleam or the other two incumbents or the other three incumbents rather were harmed by the wide number of candidates. I just think, I think the challengers would have run up their vote totals even more had there been fewer non-serious candidates taking their votes. Let's talk about that for a second. So we had 21 candidates running for Santa Monica city council in one race. We had another race, by the way, I keep in mind, we had a two year seat. That was not a race, right? Nobody ran for that. So we have one. Well, we had well, Crystal well, sorry, sorry, Yeah, just, no just one the, challenged. Just the anymore. incumbent. Right? We have twenty. So we have twenty-two candidates. Twenty-one went into the four-year term. Matt, I think you did some research on the next, the city that had the next number of 
challengers. I think you said it was 15. Yeah. And they had so, a mayoral race as well. Yeah. And, so there was no one else that had, had 21 candidates. We had more candidates running in our municipal race than any municipality in Los Angeles County. Okay. Just, and and there, anyone, there were some that were like 15. There were some that were 11. There were a couple that were double digits, but it was literally three or four. And in all of those cases, those were multi-district races. So they may have had a mayor's election and two city council seats in specific districts. Right. So there was there was no race anywhere in Los Angeles County that was as competitive as Santa Monica City Council. Okay. Nowhere. And Todd, and, what and, was the difference between the fourth and the fifth seat? About, about how many votes was that? Between fourth and... So in other words, making the it, cut or not making the cut, how many what was it approximately? Oh, it's... 300 or something. So 300 votes decides whether you make the cut to be on city council or not. Oh, no, sorry. Between the the fourth and the fifth, uh, sorry, that's that's about 1,100. So it's a, okay. it's a decent so 1,100 amount. votes. 1,100 votes now. We should say that yeah. the, these votes totals have changed a little bit, and the, the county is still counting votes, and there's there's going to be some – These are we'll call these fuzzy numbers, right? Yeah. They're, they're not quite precise, but yeah. Okay. So, and Todd, you went to the election center, and I see you have a ballot in front of you. So what does 21 candidates well, we, you know, do for the ballot positioning? I'm sure most people looked at their paper ballot and saw this giant column of candidates. And maybe they looked over and saw another partial column of candidates on the right. Yeah. So there was, you know, five of the candidates couldn't even fit in the column for city council. They had to overflow into another column. And as we heard, you know, we had a, Several uh, anecdotes of people not being able to find some of those people over on that right side mm-hmm. um, to vote for. Um, and two of the incumbents were there, Ted Winter and Anahara. And they, you know, I don't know if it's coincidence or not, but they were the two lowest vote getters for the incumbents. Uh, um, and then, you know, the other three people over there, I mean, they everyone, the lowest vote getter of all was over there. You know, not a real candidate, but, you know, et cetera. Um, so the ballot was too long, um, and I, I'll say this: uh, you know, as bad as the paper ballot was, it was worse on the, the voting machine because, you know, you had to you had to page down five times to get to the end of the ballot, and you know, wow, if you were not keeping track of how many people you voted for along the way, et cetera, you might have gotten to the end and just moved on, right? Right. Um, so I, I don't. We heard about a lot of confusion. It's interesting. In the first vote total that came in, which was the mail-in, yeah. Ted Winter had actually – he was in the top four. Yeah. Should be noted he's an incumbent and both right. – Right. He, he's, he's an incumbent, but he was over on this right side of the ballot. So even though he's over on the right side of the ballot, he made it through the paper vote. Mm-hmm. But then when the machine vote started to come through, he just fell away yeah. immediately. And again, I think being – both he and Anahar were five pages down in, you know, it was very, uh, and the, the voting machines on top of that are, are very confusing how you page forward versus go on to the next race, et cetera. It's very, uh, I don't know why, even though they're large screens, you only can see four candidates at a time, for instance. It's it's, yeah. it's a poor design and uh, uh, county designed them themselves. And I think <laughs> so, so they no, designed no them in Microsoft comment. Word. No, no further comment. Yeah, maybe they could take a, a book out of like, you know, some uh, tech U, UI developers. <laughs> like, right. how do we make this fair? So, anyway, I don't know what all this means. We know there was a lot of anti-incumbent sentiment. Um, we know there's a ridic- 
an unusual number of people on the ballot because the threshold was lowered for COVID mm-hmm. in terms of number, numbers of signatures you had to gather to qualify. It looks to me it backfired on us. And and then the machines were, are not great. And certainly when it came to the city council election where you had 21 candidates and you yeah. could only see four people at a time, four candidates at a time. So we don't know how all of that factored into the outcome, but um, and we never will. But I, I got it was an unusual election all the way around. Is it fair to say those mechanical variables affected the election in some way? Yeah. So so I think this goes back to the idea we said at the beginning, which is if it was just anti-incumbency sentiment, Mario would have won and Gleam would have lost. Right. And so that didn't happen. So there were other factors that either worked against Mario or worked for Gleam, right? There was something else at work. There's another variable. And and I think ballot order is absolutely one of those variables. You know, absolutely it's one of them. And some people didn't scroll down all the way. Some people couldn't find them. Like that, that's definitely a variable. Like, I also think that the amount of work that people put into their campaign is absolutely a variable. And to be blunt, I think the incumbents did a very poor job. And we talked about this internally on their campaigns. They didn't campaign nearly as hard as Phil did. Yeah. And Phil's slate elevated um, the other folks on it as well. But I, I mean, I think factors working against. Some of the candidates, you know, Christine also had the um, fire department's backing. And so she had an additional push for her mm-hmm. that may have elevated. So like if you look at Phil and say he has great name recognition, he's known throughout the city. He's n- he was first on the ballot, which is a huge, which is an advantage, right? So there was l- several different factors that broke Phil's way. Then you look at Christine. She also had the fire department's backing. So, in addition to the anti-incumbency right. sentiment as the as the floor, yeah. then they build on that, right? Yeah. So, so Phil built on that with with popularity and ballot and other things, money. Christine built on it with um, backing from the fire department, and she actually was really good in person and she did campaign, right? So she built on it. Um, Oscar also has a lot of built-in name recognition. A lot of people know him. He has a lot of support in the Pico neighborhood. You know, he was campaigning. He sent out campaign emails and he sent out statements and he, uh, you know, he was, he tried, I think I didn't see, I didn't see nearly as many campaign emails come out from Mario just as one factor as I did. Yeah. Right. right? So like Absolutely. built on that. And so I think those are, there all those factors played in. And so that then the question for me comes down to, so what, what were the factors that played into gleam that didn't, play into Terry, Ted, and Anna. And for me, that comes down to her history with schools because she is a mm. known entity at the school board. Yeah. Lots of education, early education advocates know her. Um, I think that's a constituency that the other candidates don't have. And when you look at the school board race, the challengers just didn't really make a dent. It was it was the two incumbents plus there's an open seat that was filled by Jen Smith who was very much endorsed by the two incumbents. And so... I think, looking at this, I think that voting pool is a little... I think people who voted for school board are a little bit different from the people who voted for city council. And I think when they crossed over, I think they crossed over with Gleam. I think that's where she picked up those extra votes from. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, we can't prove this. We're just speculating. But that's that's what I think explains her ability to to beat out... And and that makes sense. The school board had higher interest this year for... Several reasons. There was an open seat. 
There was kind of an establishment pick to take that seat, campaigned along with the incumbents, if you will, and some of the mailers. You had a slate of three challengers. You have the Malibu factor. They had kind of the Malibu pick for the Mm -hmm. board, et cetera. And actually, on a per-seat basis, more people voted for school board than voted for city council. So about 40,200 people voted for each of the open city council seats. About 40,700 voted for each of the school board seats. So there's clearly a lot of interest in school board this year, and that may have carried gleam as a result. Well, it's interesting. For the first time in a long time, we've had very qualified school board candidates apply for the job. Yeah, we've right. had two cycles of of and so we had a, we had one cycle with only only Keen running right. So he he walked in four years ago, and last year we only had one. I think we only had one challenger last year. Yeah, and twenty eighteen. Yeah, yeah, at twenty eighteen last cycle. So yeah, we had a lot of more qualified people this time. Yeah, vastly and, more. And I should say, despite us pounding all of the twenty one candidates, we didn't pound all the twenty one candidates. We just pounded a couple of the jokers, and we didn't name them. By the way. But anybody who runs for public office, you know, this is not a highly paid position. This is a lot of give. It's not a lot of take. And anybody that's running, particularly, you know, at the school board level, gosh, these people care, right? Yeah, they they want to make a difference. And this is education and they're passionate. And I found in every one of these candidates, they, they had that and they are willing to give their time to do that. So props on you candidates that you ran, even you city council folks that were pounding a little bit. Um, yeah, although although I would say this, so we've always traditionally said that and praised people who who, who run, right? And although I I think again, this goes to the twenty one candidates. I think we've crossed a line where I don't think all the candidates running for city council genuinely care about the city. I don't. I think we've crossed the line where we've got people who, for any number of selfish reasons, are running because they want the attention. I don't think they actually care about the city. I think I think we've got people who are multi-time candidates who have lost again and again and again, and they're not articulating viewpoints, policies, or procedural changes that are interesting or different or really would be advantageous to the city. And one of the ways to, to measure this is look at how many of these people disappear in between election cycles, Yeah, right? You never hear from them unless they're running from city council. They're not on, um, they're not on the PTA at their school. They're not on their neighborhood council. They're not part of Rotary. They just disappear until it's time to get the free attention by putting your name on a ballot. Mm. And I think I think we have gotten more of that. Well, we know we've got more of that here than in other places because you can look at the candidate lists for other city councils and other cities aren't dealing with those people. They, they aren't running in the same way. So in general, yes, people who are genuinely running, even if they've got no chance, should be praised for taking the time and effort. But I do think... We've crossed the line now in Santa Monica, particularly this year, with people who aren't interested in making a difference. They're just interested in in feeling important. And so yeah. city council, because the threshold is so low, right? It, exactly. The, the effort is so low. Yeah. Traditionally, you only need 100 signatures, which is also crazy low. And this year, it was reduced to, what, 30? Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> it was just no bar to entry. Yeah. Um, and You don't have to raise any money to make it on the ballot. No, you don't have to. Yeah. And to your point, Todd, like fourth and fifth place is decided by hundreds of votes, not, I guess, a thousand, eleven hundred now, right? but it's been a hundred. Usually it's, it's been hundreds of votes. Yeah. You win by hundreds of votes, 21,000 votes at these candidates, not all of them, but like most of them gobbled up, like kind of took away from our electoral process. 
in a way, in a small way. Well, and, and I don't think it's a small or maybe way. Maybe a I significant mean, way. When you look at trying to get, try to organize a candidate, like we've tried to do scrum nights, right? And look yeah. at candidate debates. And look at what happened with the Republican primary four years ago, right. where they had to have the kids' table primary, where there were so many candidates. And like, Democrat. You, you, oh, no, remember on the Republican side, there was, oh, the Democrats were the one that split the Democrats it Democrats yeah. for this, yeah. But they were, um, you know, when you've got so many candidates, a voter is, it's, in, it's impossible to run a candidate forum with 21 people where everyone gets more than a few seconds to try and answer a question to make a difference. Like voters are not going to get the ability to know everybody and understand substantive policy differences between them. It's an overwhelming number. And so this year we went to the podcast format. Yeah. But even with that, who was going to listen to 20? We didn't podcast everybody because some of them just had no shot and were unqualified. But if we, if we did, who was going to listen to 21 hours of podcasts on local city council races? Like, Well, you and me and... And you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Me because I would interview them all and the two of you for having to edit them, right? Yeah. But like, yeah. so that's where I come from on this is that I do actually think there's a harm to having this many unqualified candidates because it detracts from the ability of qualified candidates to communicate efficiently to the voters. So how do you fix that? Can you fix that? So this, I mean, it's harsh, but you can fix it because you can fix it by not legitimizing people who have no shot. And I think, I think we... I think there's a, a, a has been an impression in this town that everyone gets patted on the head and said good job for trying and like not enough sort of repercussions. No one no one is ever told you did a bad thing. Everyone's patted on the head and said good job for trying. And I think that needs to stop. And I think people should stop should stop pretending that individuals who have whatever kind of colorful background or individuals who are clearly not competent and capable should be sharing the stage with people who are going to make a difference. Serious candidates. Yeah, and like you as the voter are robbed of the ability to make an accurate and intelligent choice because your brain has been commandeered with bullshit from people who don't know what they're talking about. And like that, we just need to stop congratulating people for doing that. And that sounds harsh and it sounds... but No participation awards for running for city council. No, no, absolutely not. Some of this has been self-selected. You know, historically, there's been post-election complaints to the Fair Practices Committee, right? So we have, there's, I know a handful of candidates have not run this term. I'm not going to name any of them, but, you know, they had a complaint about, and because they were just disorganized, they didn't file their paperwork, they didn't turn things in. Somebody pointed that out and said, hey, we're going to complain again. They have to go defend that. And so that prevents them from running the next time. So I guess... There's one mechanism <laughs> to keeping people from running again, and that's to complain f- to the federal uh, FPPC. But that doesn't stop them from running again. It doesn't stop them, but it's a, it's one mechanism. I don't know. You know, I didn't hear from you a, a way to actually keep those folks no, from running time. There, there, and, no, there's and no again. legal mechanism. Yeah. There, there's, there's a societal pressure and societal norms that should come into play. There's no legal pressure that you can apply, and there's no – disqualification other than getting your your 100 names on the on the, the ballot but if residents demanded the ability to hear from the the legitimate candidates and they didn't tolerate people stealing their 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 chance to learn right those candidates would eventually fall away fall by the wayside yeah. and I'll say we have done some winnowing of the field because we apply a criteria to folks who get our either in squirm night or our podcasts Right, you have to, you have to have. Some, if you run in the past, you have to have gotten a certain percentage of the vote. 
and you have to have raised some money because you have to do some level of campaigning and we look for endorsements. Like we do some winnowing of the field. But this is all about next time stuff for what it's worth. I mean, yeah. We kind yeah. of have gone down a little bit of a tangent. All right, let's, let's move on. So we have, we have uh, this year we was marred by this failure of the U.S. Postal Service, right? Like everybody was scared that the USPS wasn't going to perform. They were being defunded. And there was a big question of how, how effective will campaign mailers be? We know a lot of the old school political consultants that advise certain folks here in town rely heavily on direct mail. So how much did the did the mail or the I guess the lack of confidence in our mail system affect this year's election or did it? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting question. So we know that come election day the polling centers weren't completely deserted, wasn't like quite crickets chirping, but it was incredibly low numbers of people who were voting in person on election day. And we know that the vast majority of voters did some sort of um, vote, whether they voted and put it in the mail or put it in a Dropbox or dropped it off. Like We know most people did some sort of alternative, right? So I don't think fears about the mail stopped people from using mail and voting. Okay. What do you think, Todd? Well, certainly this election process benefited those who started early and had more funds. Phil Brock being the poster child for that, he started, you know, I don't know when he started campaigning, two years ago? I don't know. But, you know, everyone knew Phil and Brock the Vote and what he was about by the time their ballots arrived in the mail for them to fill out, right? Right. So first week in October. Other people, and we saw it here at the paper, other people five days before the election were kind of running their first ads and, you know, really getting into it, right? And, you know, there was a flurry of mailers – in my mailbox, you know, the two or three days before the election, mm-hmm. you know, I think 80% of people had already done it by then. So yeah. um, those those were wasted. And uh, so I think this election was all about you, you had to start early and just be persistent. Phil, I think, was the only one that you could really put in that category. And by the way, he was there on – I saw him out on the street at – seven o'clock at night on election day with his sign still still working it right so he he started the earliest and worked all the way to the end and he ended up with the most votes and i think there's something to be said for that sure we go back to the mail question though because it's interesting that we did see a difference in the way the votes broke as the votes were counted right in the first update which was all mail and votes as we said ted had retained his seat and I think Terry was actually just ahead of Oscar at the very, very beginning. And then as more votes were counted, Oscar has consistently gained on then surpassed Terry. Right. And so the first wave of votes were all mail. The, all the votes that were mailed in, when we say mailed, they were either put in a drop box. They were, the county registrar had them before election day, right? And then they counted the in-person votes from the machines. And then the subsequent tallies have been mail-in ballots that came in later in the cycle or provisional ballots or votes that were in some way difficult, like sort of the, broadly speaking, the terminology. Mm-hmm. So it clearly people voted differently in person than they did by mail, right? Like, and we saw that nationally so, as well. So check this. So, so what's the, the cutoff for that is if, you're, if your mail had arrived by November 2nd, you were included in that first batch. And that first batch yeah. included three of the four incumbents. 
Yes. yes. The very right. first right. one. Yes. Right. Just to set the timing up. Very so first you, one. You had to vote by mail by the 30th at the latest. Probably, or that, whatever it was. Is that fair? Or okay. drop it in the, the drop box. Or the drop, the box. drop box. Okay. Right. So you have, you know, so really the, the last few days of this election went heavily to the to the challengers. It appears that way. Yes, yes. I mean, absolutely. I mean, absolutely. There's a, and I, th- I think there was a big push from the challengers right at the end, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was definitely a, a, everyone started to push more and more. And I think the challengers in particular pushed really hard. They had a car parade on the Saturday before Election Day, et cetera. So there, there was I think they, you know, Phil had been going full guns from the beginning. But yeah. I think the challengers in particular, I think, amped it up even more then the rest of the field amped it up at the end. Yeah. Well, I do, I do remember when, when we were looking internally, we were looking at when are we going to plan all of our coverage and where are the big pushes that we need to be, you know, concentrating on our podcast? Where do we need to be recording? When do we need to be releasing? I remember on October 3rd was a key date for us because it was the first week of ballots being mailed out. So they may not have gotten there that first week, but they were being mailed out that week, which means race is live. Here we go, right? Right. I went into your office, man. I said, I think the only person campaigning right now is Phil because he was out there beating the drum really early. And I think that, you know, at the end of the day, that paid off for him. Um, yeah. Know, it, it, you haven't got see a lot of campaigning votes. until about mid-October after that. And, but again, we go back to the, so going back to the mail-in ballot thing, the more I think about it, the, there clearly was a difference in in-person voting versus mail-in voting, right? Again, going back to those vote totals. Yeah. And so what kind of person voted in person as opposed to it by mail. And we don't know this like there's yet we may never know this, right? Yeah. But like it's just it's just interesting to think about how that how that split developed. Is it just about people hearing the challengers names closer to the time they voted, so therefore they voted for them? Like I don't I don't think that's it. I, I think Again, I don't have any research on this. We're just spitballing it right as we're in here. But I think it's actually a different kind of person who chose to go and vote in person. I think I think maybe going back to looking at the on the national level, right? We had you saw more Biden voters vote by mail and Trump voters voted in person. And I'm I'm not saying the challenger voters were Trump voters, but I'm just saying that there was a clear there's a clear political alignment nationally on voting in person. And I wonder if there was also some sort of political alignment here where, again, we don't know the numbers, but perhaps older people were more likely to vote by mail because they were more concerned and perhaps they broke more for the incumbents. And perhaps we saw, perhaps it was more younger voters who were more excited to cast their ballot that wanted to be part of the in-person process. And, you know, I just, I, I wonder if there's some demographic quotient that we're missing that, that factors in there. Well, Todd, you voted by you voted in person. You chose to vote in person early, but yes, early. in person. So, what were your reasons? Uh, I, I wanted to see the machines. Oh, <laughs> you know what, what it was like to vote for twenty-one city council people on a yeah. machine. Uh huh. And it was bad. You know, it, it was yeah. a bad experience at that machine. I mean, I I don't. I still, you know, for those that haven't voted in person on the new machines, I guess this is the second election we've had them. It's a giant iPad, if you will. It's a very large screen. And how they only manage to put four candidates on the screen at a time is just beyond me. It's really, really poorly, poorly designed. The county of L.A. should not be designing anything for themselves (laughs) based upon the experience with that machine. 
So that's why I voted. Okay, so you so curiosity. There's but I think a so lot. We're not, of, we're not so really I tracking think, down I think, Matt's theory I, of. Uh, I, I think a lot of people voted in person, whether it was early or the day of, because they were really paranoid about the mail too. And if you remember, we read in the paper a few weeks ago one of the one of the ballot boxes was lit on fire right in in L.A. And I, you know, I think people were just really worried about the mail getting it there on time and. Even though they did, didn't really want to risk, from a COVID perspective, going out and yeah. voting in person, to them it was you know it was worth it because they didn't have to worry about their vote getting counted. Yeah. Do we want to talk about Smur? I mean, I, yeah, that, that's part of the campaign. For right. those of you that don't know, Smur is Santa Monica for renters' rights. Right. And there's uh, there I'm not going to say they're affiliated with, but there's another group called Santa Monica Forward. That both paid for a lot of campaign mail. Yeah, yeah. I actually don't know how much Smur paid for. I feel like Forward paid for a lot more. Right? I, I, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Anecdotally, I just looking at the piles. Yes, I would agree with that. And so, yeah. So, so here's here's this goes back to the point that we made earlier, which was in broad strokes, the challengers mounted a much more efficient and much more robust campaign than the incumbents, right? And just broadly speaking, the incumbents did a bad job of campaigning. I just I don't think anyone can really critique that. The incumbents may feel bad that a say, about us saying it, but they did. They did a bad job of campaigning, and I think part of that is is the inter, is their reliance, the historical reliance on Smur, and not just Smur, but specifically Unite here. I don't know if this has got over time. This may be we may cut this for time, but here, so here's here's the here's the, the <laughs> give theory. us a five dollar right, version. Well, well, right, so. Smur and so Unite here is the hospitality union. Yep. Santa Monica's for renters' rights is the old school political party that has supported that once upon a time was the kingmaker, but honestly hasn't been for several election cycles. But once upon a time was incredibly powerful. I'm gonna get a lot of phone calls about that statement, but go yeah, ahead. and that's Keep fine, going. and we'll defend that all day long, right? Like I just <laughs> go look at we can defend that with numbers, right? But when you look at how those two groups have worked. They've really only worked efficiently when they've worked in lockstep. They haven't worked efficiently and they haven't had success when they have been truly disparate entities. Unite here and Smur. Yes. Got it. And so I think what has happened historically is incumbents haven't had to work very hard to get reelected because a third party, which is the union of Unite here and Smur, has done the campaign for them. And their their political candidates haven't had to be very good or very savvy or really understand how to campaign. All they've had to do is secure the Smur endorsement, and then that machine, which is Smur and Unite here together, has done all of the work for them. Yeah, and door I think, knocking and in person yeah, stuff, and bought and the mailers, mailers and, and just done yeah, all the work. And this cycle, two things happened. Unite here was totally absent from the local scene because they got their union's been shredded by layoffs and furloughs. And they just haven't had – they don't have the clout they once had. Their membership's in, in tatters right now. And I'll be, I'll be getting calls about that statement as well, but yeah. keep going. Well, but, but that's – I mean, I'm not, no, that's I'm not criticizing that's that. That's just that. fact. Yeah, like, fact. You know, when Disneyland laid off how many thousands of employees, yeah. it was a huge hit to them. Right. And then similarly, Smur didn't, wasn't able to have the in-person convention that usually riles everybody up, and they weren't able to go out and use union volunteers or other volunteers to door knock and – you know, they just weren't able to go out and do that. Right. And so in this cycle, if the and I, I think many of the incumbents didn't realize how reliant they were on the third parties. They thought they had actually campaigned. But going back to compare compare any incumbent and what they actually did to what Phil did. Like to Todd's point, 
we didn't, no one here saw any of the incumbents on the side of the road with a sign saying, vote for me the night of the election. Didn't see it, but you saw Phil. Right. Right. And I think that's a big factor in this, in that the, the challengers actually campaigned and ran efficiently and went out and really asked people for their vote. And I don't think the incumbents did. And, and that's where the Smurf factor comes in, right? Traditionally, Smur has done that on behalf of the incumbents or the incumbents that they support because they don't always endorse all the incumbents. And this year, they didn't. They didn't do it as much. And so, you know, had they worked harder, could they have gotten more votes? Yeah. Could they have gotten enough votes to win? Like, I don't know. Like, maybe not. Maybe we'll see. A lot but, of variables this year. But I, I think, I absolutely think that the lack of union activity undermined Smur's ability to push forward candidates. Like I think I think there's a very direct correlation between those two things. And we don't know if that'll ever come back. Like the economy is what it is, right? COVID's going, we don't know. We yeah. have no idea what's going to happen with hotel reopenings and hospitality and whether Unite here will be able to rebuild its membership. Will it will it then care enough to get involved in local elections? Like we don't know what will we have district elections in 2 years? Like it it's impossible to tell if this was a blip or if this was uh, a, a true sea change like, mm-hmm. because so many things are different this year. We're yeah. going to have to wait and see until next year. Just, and again, if we have district elections next year, who the hell knows? <laughs> like it could be even crazier, yeah. but yes, I think that, that Smur was definitely, we, I would say they were a non-factor this year and that was the problem for the incumbents, right? Like they, yeah. that, that Smur well, just didn't help them out. The incumbents did not get elected. So that would officially be a non-factor. Right. Yeah, and so they said, yeah, that's what that's what I think Smur's role in this was. It was that they weren't as efficient as they have been. Gosh, we spent a lot of time on city council, but we did have a couple other a couple other elections. We had the school board, we had the college board, and we had rent control. We had two measures that passed, A, B, and SM. So let's the the rent control is easy, right? We had the two incumbents. Yeah. Well, I think I think what's interesting here is the cognitive dissonance between every other race and city council, right? Because yeah. in every other race it was incumbents and establishment that won. And at city council, it was the three challengers. And that's, that's why I say cognitive dissonance. At school board, two incumbents won, plus a challenger who was endorsed by incumbents. At college board, all three incumbents won. And at the rent control board, both incumbents won. So no challenger uh, defeated an incumbent in any other race. And in the local ballot measures, they both passed, and they were both put on the ballot by the city for various reasons to make city hiring easier or to raise money. And so it's interesting and I think a little bit logically inconsistent that you would vote in three challengers but then support the establishment all the way down the ballot in every other race. I'm not saying it's morally right or wrong. I just think it's logically inconsistent. And that's an interesting factor that we're going to have to pick apart as the city moves forward to figure out what that means. Well, do you think, Todd, that this has to do with people's satisfaction of the state of the city versus the state of the school district versus the state of the college board or rent control for that? Well, I, that's impossible to know, but I think, you know, on the school board, I don't think people want to rock the boat during COVID times. And yeah. this is a weird time for uh, parents of school children. It's a terrible time. Plus, Malibu votes in our school board, right? And so, you know, school board's different. Um, you know, rent control board, you, you know, you had two strong incumbents and then you had, you know, a, uh, landlord and then another 
you know, challenger that didn't have the experience. So I, I don't think that was a big surprise. College board, kind of same thing. You know, I don't, I don't think most people, you know, that the participation in the college board vote was the lowest in terms of the number of people voted in that race. People don't know a lot about the college board. They, you know, I, in fact, I was at with a couple of people the other day and I asked them to name one SMC board member and they, yeah. they, they couldn't ever in the history of time they <laughs> name a SMC board member. So that, that's a different race also. Yeah. Just basing on a completely empirical uh, look at, at how much people complain, right? Like, <laughs> do I never hear anybody complaining about the college? unless the pool's closed, right? right? Like I don't hear a lot of people complaining. I hear some people complaining about the school district, but not as much as I hear people complaining about traffic and crime and homelessness, which is the city, city. that lot falls city squarely on the city council. Um, again, not scientific. No, I mean, I hear complaints about the college all the time. Like I think, and again, I think the people who voted for the challengers in the city council race we have no scientific data on this, but I will bet any amount of money that if you find someone who voted for all four challengers in city council and ask them how they feel about the college, they will, I would think, almost universally say it's too big, it's too large, it doesn't cater to residents. Like that, I can the litany of complaints. I think are easy to understand, and because that it takes so few votes to influence that race, mm-hmm. that's why I think it's logically inconsistent. Some it, that, that that they weren't able to mount a challenge to those candidates. I just think it's strange because I do think there's a lot of residents who, the same residents that are concerned about crime and homelessness and all those other things, also are going to be concerned about development and overdevelopment. And people think that the college causes too much traffic. And I'm, I mean, I'm not saying these things are all true. I'm just saying that I think there's, for the number of people who clearly were so anti-incumbent at this at the city council level, because it takes so few votes, particularly at SMC, I think it's, like I say, strange or logically inconsistent that they were unable to influence that vote. Well, but, actually, it was the opposite this year, though. I mean, it took top vote getter for city council was 18,700. Top vote getter for SMC was 31,700 because there was only four people running for three seats, right. whereas city council oh, right, had right, 21 right. people Going running back. for four seats. So I, I it was actually that. a lot harder to displace someone at SMC in terms yeah. of number of votes you needed to raise. And that, um, that, that, goes, that, that goes back to our whole dilution theory of like, why right. do we have 21 people running for city council exactly. and only one person running for the two-year seat? Yeah. That just didn't make any sense <laughs> to me either. That is yeah. absurd. Well, and, and that goes back, again, going back to the ballot measures as well as an example where if it was just, and going back to my original point, if anti-incumbency sentiment was this was the only factor in these things, the, the results would have been different than they are. And so anti-incumbency is a huge factor, and I think it's the most important factor, and I think it's the foundation. But when you start to tease out what happened outside of the city council race, there were clearly other factors at work, right? Clearly other factors at work. Yeah. Um, All right. I think we've discussed this to death here. Yes. Is there anything we missed? <laughs> Do we got to go over anything else? Uh, with the date the new city council sworn in? December oh, uh, 8th December 8th, yeah. Right. I think. Okay. Right. All right. Well, thanks for listening. Uh, we are back next week with a, uh, I think uh, we have a guest podcast with Michael Feinstein. All right. We are out. Thanks for joining us today on Inside the Daily Press. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to your podcast, whether that be Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or elsewhere. Music. 
for the Inside the Daily Press podcast is brought to you by The Brig Band. The Brig Band is an LA jam band that has been playing live since 2002. Regular members and guests have played professionally with everyone from Miles Davis, Herbie Hancock, and Stevie Wonder to The Doors, Fishbone, and Steely Dan. To find out where and when you can hear them live, head to thebrigband.com.